you have your copy of the Word of God, I want to invite you to open up to the book of James. As Mr. David has already said, we'll be in the book of James in chapter 4 this morning. Beginning in verse 13, if you found your place, say, word, a little different this morning, It's, it's the word, all right, it's the word of God, let us read, come now you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit, yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to the one who knows the good or the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Let us pray. Father, as we consider your word this morning, we realize that even as we have sung about your grand, your majesty, your your greatness, we realize, Lord, that we truly are before you as transparent and there's nothing we can hide from you, nor, Lord, should we want to hide anything from you. And so this morning, as we come before your word to read, to learn to be exhorted and and charged in our faith. I pray that you would speak to us by your spirit. Holy Spirit, illumine our minds to comprehend the wonderful truth of your word and open our hearts to love your word. And God, give us an endurance to apply and to walk according to your word so that we might we might work out our salvation with fear and trembling so that we might grow in godliness and perfection, maturity until completion and the return of Christ. Thank you, Father, for the work that you're doing in our lives, continuing to do, and that which you desire to do. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. For the last several weeks, we've been walking through this title, Between Two Worlds. This is the third message in between two worlds, but it really began back in chapter 3, verse 13, where James kind of turned a corner and he began challenging us in this living and walking according to worldly wisdom, contrasted with walking according to godly wisdom. And we talked about how that kind of fleshed out in in our life and how that would apply, but we, we don't have time to cover and recover that this morning. But what we do is we understand this contrast between worldly wisdom and walking in the way of the world and godly wisdom and pursuing godliness and righteousness in our lives. And God's desire is that we would walk by His wisdom, which of course comes from His Word, and so we, we read His Word then we understand the wisdom of God as the Holy Spirit illumines our minds and we, we comprehend His Word, walk in His wisdom, and we walk according to His ways. 
And so church, if we are going to be a people that walk in the wisdom of God and embrace the will of God, we must be a people that are committed to, who are committed to prayer. And so the title of the message this morning is Between Two Worlds, Part 3, Embracing God's Will. Embracing God's Will. There were five young college students who were spending a Sunday in London on a layover. They had went to hear the famed C.H. Spurgeon preach. And while, while they were waiting for the doors to open, the students were greeted by a man who asked, Gentlemen, would you like to come in and, and let me show you around? Would you like to see the, heat, heat, see the heating plan of the church? The young men not wanting to uh, be rude, and, and really they weren't very interested in seeing the heating plan. It was the middle of July. But not wanting to be rude, they said, sure, show us the heating plant. And so the stranger began taking them around. He took the young men down a stairway. And as they walked down the stairway, a door was quietly opened. And there the guide whispered, this is our heating plant. If you didn't hear me, this is our heating plant was the whisper. Surprised the students saw as the door opened, they saw 700 people gathered in this room praying they were bowed low in prayer they were seeking a blessing on the service that was soon to begin in the auditorium above softly closing the door the gentleman then introduced himself it was none other than Charles Spurgeon you know it's been said that prayer can be likened to the captain of a boat who is drawing near to shore and throws his anchor out to shore and then he begins pulling But as he's pulling, he's not pulling the land to the boat. Instead, he pulls the boat to the land. So it goes with the will of man being lived out in submission to the will of God. Prayer pulls our souls into the harbor of God's will and believes God for the work that only God can do. And so this morning, I want to give us four practical exhortations on how to walk and embrace the will of God. And to do that, we're going to spell out pray. You see that on your bulletin or the worship guide insert there, if you're following along. We're going to spell out the word pray. So church, the only way to embrace the will of God is through prayer, truly. If we're not spending time in prayer, we are not going to embrace the will of God because we're not going to be aligning our will with the will of our Father. And so if we're going to embrace embrace the will of God, first thing we must do is we must put away presumptuous living. We must put away presumptuous living. And this is really what James is getting at here in in verse 13 and, and really at the heartbeat of this passage for it drives everything else in this passage. In fact, he begins with very strong words. These strong words, it's, it's abrupt language. He says, come now, you who say. You who say, we'll go to this or that place. We'll, we'll spend a year there. We'll engage in making profit. This language is meant to capture their attention. But who's he speaking to, this group that he identifies as you who say? Who's he speaking to? He, he's speaking to merchants of the city. He's speaking to really wealthy merchants who are talking about going across and going abroad and and, and trading. These are businessmen of the congregation that he's writing to. They were saying in verse 13, 
today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. The interesting thing about verse 13 here is all of these verbs that follow what they're going to do, that talk about what they're going to do, they're all in the future tense. And it really is pointing to this this confident self-assurance that these businessmen have. This is the plan. They've made a plan and they're about to carry it out. They've made calculated plans to embark on this business trip, to go international or go foreign and to make all of this trade. But James says that these calculated plans that they've made, they are presumptuous plans. They are plans that don't take into account the will of God. They have failed to include God in their business plan. They've really compartmentalized God in their life is what they've done. They said, God, you can be over this area of my life, right? But this is what we're doing. We're we're going this direction. This This is the plan that we've made. This is the plan for, this is the business plan for how we are to make a profit. Even more, James is really saying, I want you to catch what he's really saying. He's really saying these plans are driven by an insatiable desire to make a profit. For that's what kind of caps off the plans there at the end of verse 13. We'll spend a year there, we'll engage in business, and we will make a profit. Now I want to be clear that James is not against wealth, he's not against profit. That's not the point that James is making here. What James is against is James is against worldly wisdom. He's against worldly wisdom that manifests itself in presumptuous living. And that's what's happening in the lives of these tradesmen and in the lives of these merchants. You might ask, well, how do we really know this is what James is talking about? Well, this verse 13 really kind of begins a new section here. And in verse 13, where this new section begins, it's this word, come now, you who say, he identifies this group of people. And it really kind of leads over into chapter 5, verse 1. You see where he says again in chapter 5, verse 1, come now, you rich, identifying this group of people. There's only two times in James, or in the New Testament, where, where this phrasing, phraseology is used. This introductory language is used for calling people into account. But it's also connected before with verses uh, 1 through 13, really, or 1 through 12, really from chapter 3, verse 13. The connection here, the, the connection also is that these men are called to live lives in submission to God, are they not? Look in verse 7 of chapter 4. What's he say? Submit, therefore, to God, right? Resist the devil and he will flee from you. They're called to live lives of submission to God, not to make their own plans presumptuously without coming to God. Also in verse 10, we see the connection as well, the call to humble oneself. Humble yourselves, he says, before the Lord. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and He will exalt you. Verse 6 as well, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble And so how do we know this is what James is speaking about? Well, he's very directly challenging these these businessmen in the congregation that are making their presumptuous plans without considering the will of God for their lives. The challenge for us today is very similar, is it not? 
we tend as well to be a people who would quickly compartmentalize God. We take our means, we do what we want to do. But I want you to see what James is saying, that this calculated plan is a sort of practical atheism. It's a practical atheism. That is to say that they say one thing, they believe in God, but when it comes right down to it, their lives are not honoring God. They're not following God and what they're doing. They're not living in such a way as God really does exist and really is sovereign and in control over all things. These church members are say they believe in God, but their actions and their life plans are birthed out of their own wills and satisfying their own desires. And if you recall back in chapter four, verse one, he says, is not the source of your pleasures that hedonism, that Hedonistic pleasure, pursuit of their own pleasure. This is the full force of hedonistic living, pursuing their own pleasures. So they say, I believe in God. They say he is Lord of my life. But when it comes right down to it, they make plans and do really whatever they want to do. There's no consideration here for the will of God. They've decided they control their own destiny and they've compartmentalized God so much instead of being consumed by God, they have set him over here on the side. The truth is, we need to understand that a presumptuous outlook on life reveals a practical atheism in life. Changed a little bit from what's on the screen. It's not that a presumptuous outlook on life leads us to a practical atheism in life, but it reveals what's already existent, a practical atheism in our life. And so the challenge for us this morning is to really come before God and and to submit to Him. One commentator writes, it's never safe to leave God out of your plans. But I would add to that, and I'd say it's never safe to make plans outside of the will of God for the believer. It's never safe for us to go outside of God's will and to make plans that are outside of his direction in our lives. In college, my plan was to pursue hotel, restaurant, and tourism administration. That was my greatest desire. I ultimately wanted to be the CEO of a large hotel chain. My end goal was to be in a profession that I thought I would really enjoy and that also would make me a lot of money. So presumptuously, I thought God would be fine with me pursuing this course. You know, but as I, as I sought the Lord and as I began to, to pray and truly submit my will to His will in search of His leading in my life, He led me in a very, very different direction. Never did I think I would be a pastor. My will for my life was very different than His will for my life. And as a disciple of Christ, I quickly learned that submitting to God was not a negotiable, lest I be like the renegade prophet Jonah. Submitting to God, listen believers, submitting to God in our life is not a negotiable. Submitting to His will in our life and following Him, it's not a negotiable for the disciple of Christ. If we quit submitting to God in our lives, we will run far, far, far away from God. You see, church, if we're going to embrace God's will, then we must put away presumptuous living. But not only must we put away presumptuous living, we must also recognize, secondly, the R here, we must recognize that God is in control. We must recognize that God is in control. I've put several references there for you that 
just really kind of reference this idea of understanding of, and there's so many more throughout Scripture that God is in control. Throughout Scripture, as we read Scripture, we see this truth that Scripture testifies to time and time again that God is in control. He says in verse 14, yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. When we really begin to stop and think about it, in light of all eternity, our time is really brief. The point that James is making here in verse 14 is that it's folly to to, to plan one's life without God. It's folly to, to live out one's life according to our own pursuits and according to uh, hedonism and seeking our own pleasures. It's folly to live in this way. And James tells us, he says, you don't, you don't know what your life will be like tomorrow. Here these, here, here these merchants are talking about going somewhere for a year, right? They're making these plans, well, today or tomorrow, I don't know, we'll we'll go and we'll spend a year there, and they're very calm, we'll make a profit, we'll engage in business, we'll engage in trade. And James is saying, man, you don't even know what your life is going to be like tomorrow. How can you do this? How can you make such calculated plans without consulting the will of God in your life? As I was thinking about this, just thinking about God's hand in our lives as believers and disciples of Christ and how he desires to direct and to shape us, to lead us, we will follow. You know, I, I began thinking about just all the different ways people try to answer this question about life, right? I mean, many people consult tarot card readers. They they want to know what the future holds. Or, or many people go and they, the first thing they do in the morning is they open the paper and they look at the daily horoscope to see, oh, well, you know, what's it going to tell me today? What's my day look like? Are they even consult psychics or spiritists to try to find out what the future holds and see what their life will be like? They want to find out their path in life. They want to find out the future. But you know, the reality that James is talking about here is that a person's future without Christ is is bleak at best. When we pursue life without God, we are pursuing the world. And that's what James is talking about earlier in chapter 4, the the pursuit of the world. To be a friend with the world is hostility toward God, he says. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Jesus in Matthew 7, 13 And 14 says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. In verse 14, for the the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and there are few who find it. James says, you don't know what your life is going to be like tomorrow. But here's the thing, God does. God knows what your life is going to be like tomorrow. God knows the plans that he has for you in your life, believer. And God wants what's best for you as the loving father. He wants what's best for his children. And sometimes what's best for his children, what's best in our life, is not necessarily what we want or what we think we want. But I'm here to tell you this morning that God is in control. And scripture is clear 
that God is in control. In fact, it's so clear that it teaches us that we are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Our time on earth is so, so small. He speaks about the transience of life and how we are quickly moving through. Ever light a barbecue pit? Or how about a sparkler? Right? Take that spark and you make those swirly things and the light stays there for a moment and then it's just gone. And all in light of eternity, this is what James is saying. Now, there weren't sparklers in his day, but this is the reality. It's like smoke. It just it vanishes. It's a vapor that just it vanishes. It's gone. Job 14, 1 and 2, Job says, who, A man who is born of a woman is a is few of days and full of trouble. He comes out like a flower and withers. He flees like a shadow and continues not. Verse 5 says, Since his days are determined and the number of his months is with you, and you have appointed his limits that he cannot pass. Our Psalm 39, 5 and 6, Behold, you have made my days as a few, a few hand breaths, he says. And my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes out about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. Proverbs 27 says, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you don't know what a day may bring. For our children, as you're following along in the children's bulletin that you've picked up, One of the passages that it focuses on is Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 11. And specifically in verses 6 through 8, this is what, this is kind of the heartbeat of of the cry there for Isaiah. A voice says, cry, and I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. There, there is a sense that we need to have, and it's a healthy sense that we need to have of God's eternal, God's eternal uh, eternality in, in our very temporal lives. God is eternal. We are temporal. God is everlasting. We are just here for a, a short time. And so it's important. It's important that we recognize that God is in control God, who is in control, has really, he has allotted our days that we might walk in wisdom. He's allotted our days that we would follow him. And our prayer ought to be like Psalm 90, 12. Oh God, teach us to number our days so that we may gain a heart of wisdom. It was C.T. Studd who wrote a famous poem. I'll, I'll just read the first two stanzas. But these profound words really capture what James is saying here. Two little lines I heard one day, traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart, and from my mind would not depart. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day my Lord to meet and stand before his judgment seat, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. You see, church, when we recognize that God is in control, we don't seek to direct our own life. We don't seek to direct our own way. 
Instead, we, we follow him. We seek to walk with him. We seek to follow him. And so, church, if we are going to embrace God's will, we must recognize that God is in control. But not only recognize that God is in control, we, we must also alter our perspective. And this is A, we must alter our perspective In verses 15 and 16, he says, look at what he says. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. You know, my grandmother always had a saying as I was growing up. I'm going to start it and see if you can finish it. If the good Lord's willing. That's right. Yeah, the good Lord's willing, the creek don't rise. She'd say that about everything. And as a child, I thought, what in the world does that mean? As I grew and began reflecting on my grandmother's faith and just thinking about her life, I I realized the sentiment of what she's saying because regardless of whether or not the creek rises, listen, if God wills it, it's going to happen, right? God's in control. But as I began to think about the sentiment of what she was saying, it's she wanted her life to be hemmed in by God she wanted her life everything she did she wanted it to be about pursuing and following God's will and that's the heart of what James is teaching us here he said instead of making all of these plans presumptuously he said, you ought to say if the Lord wills we will live and do this or that it's not about making the plans the issue is about whether or not we are seeking God's will in everything that we are doing The question ought to be for the disciple of Christ, God, is this what you have me to do in your kingdom? For the college student, is this, God, is this what you have me to do as I I grow and go through college? Is this what you have me to do for the rest of my life? Is this what I need to be about doing? Is this the way that I need to serve in your kingdom? I think it's interesting that James says, we ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live. Right? You notice that? He didn't say first, well, if the Lord wills, then we'll go and we'll do this and we'll do that and we'll engage in a profit, we'll make money, or we'll, we'll engage in trade, we'll make money. No, he says, we ought to say, if the Lord wills, first off, then we will live. Instead of making our plans as to where we're going to go and, and what we will do, James kind of takes a step back and says, where we go and what we do is not nearly as important as submitting to God and understanding foundationally that our very lives are in His hand. And what, when that becomes our perspective, then we will seek first His kingdom and seek first his righteousness, Matthew six thirty three, and all these things will be added unto you, Jesus says. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Then our prayer will be, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, right? On earth as it is in heaven, as Jesus has taught us how to pray. I think about Saint Patrick's prayer. Maybe you've heard this prayer before. Part of St. Patrick's prayer, he he really kind of catches the sentiment of what James is saying here. Perhaps it was the inspiration for his prayer, I don't know. But his prayer goes like this, Christ before me, Christ behind me, 
Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ when I lie down, Christ when I rise up, Christ when I sit, Christ when I stand, Christ in the heart of everyone who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me, Christ in every eye that sees me, Christ in every ear that hears me. Think about what James has been saying and just the practical outworking of our faith and the necessity of of walking according to the will of God and submitting our lives to the will of God. He's challenging us that our perspective would be different, that our perspective would not be presuming upon the grace of God, but our perspective would be, if the Lord wills, then this will happen in my life. If the Lord wills, then I will live, then I will wake up tomorrow, right? So in verse 16, he says, but as it is, as it is, you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil as it is these these merchants were they were boasting in their arrogance they were saying that they had control of what they were doing and they weren't submitting to god but as believers they were presumptuously living practical atheism this word boast in your arrogance it is the word boast is to have pride it goes against humble it goes against being humble before god in fact, this word it only has one other occurrence in the New Testament. It's, in, it's found in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, where he says, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. This boasting that James is speaking about, it's a boasting of evil because God is the only one who ordains this, he ordains the future. And the one who thinks that his way is better than God's, he places himself in the same position as none other than Satan himself. It's a harsh reality when we think that our way is better than God's. We place ourselves, think about it, we've become friends of the world. It's worldly wisdom. It's not godly wisdom to think that we have a better way than God, is it? It's not godly wisdom to think that We know better. No, it's worldly wisdom. It's the pursuit of our own pleasures. These merchants were boasting about their travel. They were world travelers. They'll spend a year abroad. They're boasting about the profit that they're going to make. But the need of the hour, listen, the need of the hour for these men, for these merchants, was humble obedience to Christ. It was submission in everything, in every area of their life. That was the need of the hour. That was the need for them. That was the need in the midst of the church. And it's here that we really begin to see this thread that James weaves throughout his epistle. And and, and it challenges us in our practical Christianity. Because what's occurring here in the church among these merchants is the withholding of good works. Flip back to chapter 2, verse 14. He challenges them and says, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Right? Can that faith save him if a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food? And one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body? What use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. That is to see that these merchants withholding those good works that God would be calling them to, and they're doing it because they are walking presumptuously, living presumptuously, living 
presumptuously and withholding good works at the expense of following God, God's will, in order to satisfy their own pleasure. Chapter 4, verse 1, he says it, right? The source is pleasures that wage war within their members. In verse 3, he says your, your motives are wrong and you, you ask so that you can spend it on your pleasures. You know, we don't have to think too hard to make an application to today. We don't have to think too long to make the jump from then to now to see the compartmentalization in our lives, to see the way that, that most often characterize that often characterizes our lives that we want to pursue our own way we want to wake up in the morning maybe have prayer and then go about the rest of our day as if we're in control when really God is in control so James is challenging us here he's challenging us that the correct altered perspective is a kingdom mindset Matthew 633 we're going to be a people that embrace the will of God, then we must have the altered perspective of a kingdom mindset. Think about Chuck Swindoll as he he shared in his book, uh, Living Above the Level of Mediocrity, there was a conversation that he had with Corey Ten Boom. And in that conversation that he had, he said, I'll never forget the conversation. She said to me in her broken English, Chuck, I've learned that we must hold everything loosely because when I grip it tightly, it hurts when the Father pries it loose from my fingers and takes it from me. You know, if we're going to embrace God's will, we must, we must alter our perspective. We must be willing to let go of our desire for the sake of pursuing his desire. We must be willing to submit our will to his will so that we walk according to his will and walk in obedience. But not only are we to alter our perspective, if we're going to embrace God's will, finally I want us to see that we must yield to God's leading. We must yield to God's leading in verse 17. Look at what he says, Therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, To him, it is sin. I want us to understand this proverb this morning, this this maxim that James gives here. I want us to understand the context of these wealthy merchants because that's the, the context that James is writing here. They're in the midst of the congregation and, and there's great needs among the body that, that, that need to be met. We see that in 2, 14 through 17. But James says, therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Oftentimes, when we think about sin in our lives, we we tend to think toward the extreme of maybe some immoral activity, right? Or some unethical activity that we engage in. Maybe it's lying, right? Maybe maybe it's something worse, Uh in our minds, maybe it's uh, maybe it's struggling with an addiction. Maybe maybe it's uh, maybe it's pornography. Maybe it's any host of things that we would tend to equate with wickedness or uh, evil or immorality. But have you ever thought it from the standpoint of what James is saying this morning, verse seventeen? Therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. 
It doesn't necessarily have to be engaging in a wicked activity to be sin, right? I mean, that's what James is saying here. We don't necessarily have to be engaging in some act of wickedness or some lewd, <clears throat> lewd activity for it to be sin in our lives. James says, no, if you, just, if you just fail to yield to God and you don't do what God is, is convicting you to do, then that is sin. Perhaps it's time that we would, that we would redefine our definition of immoral wickedness as refusing to yield to God in everything. We would recognize ourselves before God as that when we fail to yield to Him in everything, that when we fail to yield to Him in our life, then we are sinning against God. We are against Him. James says we don't have to be engaging in what we might call immoral wickedness to be walking in sin. You ever thought about this in connection with the life of Christ? In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus was, had been led out into the wilderness by the Spirit to be tempted. And he was fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. And in Matthew chapter 4, the Scripture says plainly that after he had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, Satan came to him and began to tempt him. When he was hungry, verse 2 of chapter 4, But he answered and said, Satan said to him, the tempter came and said, if you're the son of God, command these stones to become bread. Now, I want to submit to you that it's not inherently wicked to eat bread unless you're on like ideal protein diet or something like that, okay? It's not inherently wicked or evil to eat bread. But the temptation was to step outside of God's will. The temptation was for him to submit to some other authority in his life outside of God. And when the tempter comes and and tempts him, Christ's response was, man shall not live on bread alone, but every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Fast forward to the end of Christ's ministry where he's in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's praying. He's praying so intensely that he begins to sweat drops of blood. And his prayer was, Father, if there's any way, let this cup pass from me. But not my will, but your will be done. He prayed that prayer three times, earnestly desiring that this cup would pass, but knowing that he must submit to his heavenly Father in in order for all righteousness to take place, in order for the redemption of man. And then as he's on the cross of Christ, as he's on the cross there hanging suspended between heaven and earth, suffering agony and pain, knowing, knowing good and well that he could have called down legions of angels to come and to rescue him and take him off of the cross. Instead, he chose to suffer and to endure the cup of wrath that God was pouring out on him for the salvation of man. He chose to walk in obedience to the Father, even to the point of His own blood being shed. Christ yielding to God shows us the premier example of what it means to yield in submission to God. So if we are going to embrace the will of God, beloved, I want to encourage you and challenge you that we must yield to God in Everything in all of our life, 
And I want to submit to you that that only happens through a life of prayer. Through a life of coming before God and crying out to him. Praying before him. Therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, James says, to him, it is sin. Listen, for the disciple of Christ, you and I, if you are a born-again believer in Christ, the disciple of Christ, if we fail to yield to God's leading in our life, I want you to know, James says it's sin. And it is, it's sin. So I want to encourage you this morning, maybe you've recognized some areas in your life where you are failing to lead failing to yield to God's leading. And I want to challenge you this morning to submit to the Lord, to submit to Him in everything, to repent. Is God calling you to stop living presumptuously today? Is He challenging you to quit living in such a way that you're, you're taking your life into your own hands? Is there a specific thing in your life that you are running from God from? Maybe there's something that God's calling you to do and you're continuing to run. I want to challenge you this morning. Put away presumptuous living. Is God calling you to go somewhere and you're resisting because you don't want to relinquish control of your your own life and you think, well, if I do this, if I relinquish control, then this, man, this, this whole area of my life is out of the window. But I can promise you that following God's lead is better than any earthly reward or pleasure that we might ever find is God calling you this morning to stop living for self and begin living with a with a kingdom mindset with an altered perspective maybe this morning God's calling you to a new season of growth in your faith a closeness in your walk with him and it begins with yielding yielding to God's lead beloved I want to challenge you this morning to Submit to God in prayer to come before him and to evaluate your own heart. Maybe you've already been doing that this morning, evaluating your own heart, your own mind before the Lord. We're going to have a time of response, and I just want to invite you to bow your head and close your eyes and spend some time reflecting upon your own life before the Lord, just you and God this morning, just you and him. Let us pray. Father, as we come before you, We know, Lord, that there are areas of our lives that are not surrendered completely to you. And, Lord, we sometimes even struggle to to make that distinction of walking with you and walking in our own strength. And so I pray, Father, by your Holy Spirit, that you'd be gracious with us and merciful toward us. Lord, that you might entreat us and Bring us to a place of repentance and realization of the sin in our own lives. So, Lord, let us come this morning as your children seeking to repent and to turn away from our immoral wickedness, which is just not walking in obedience to you. So, Father, strengthen us today to respond to your leading. Father, strengthen us today to follow you, to yield to submit to you in all things. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. You can remain seated.